0: An investor's investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people, from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our guest, Danielle Lamado-Milligan. Danny's an old friend and also an expert. Who works at the intersection of finance, philanthropy, and art? She's been on all sides of those issues, working for US Trust Bank America, counseling the bank's major endowment clients, and as senior management at such major institutions as the Brooklyn Academy of Music, the Museum for African Art, and the Whitney Museum. She now runs her own consulting firm, working with national and international nonprofit organizations. She also serves on the boards of the Foundation for Advancement and Conservation and the Holt-Smithson Foundation. She's a member of the Friends of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, of Save Venice, of Women in Development of Presidents Council, New York chapter, and she's a Forward Trustee of Art Table. Welcome, Danny.
0: Thanks, John.
1: Really great to be here. So I do research on our guests and I doing research for you today. I came across lots of photos of you at galas and on podiums, but no information whatsoever about your background. It's like you're an arts philanthropy secret agent, able to wipe away your digital footprints at the same time. A mutual friend of ours once told me you're the ultimate survivor, a renaissance girl who always figures it out, no matter the cards you are dealt." So what's your origin story? How did you become the person you are today?
0: that's such an interesting description of me. And I never really, um, it's been years since I actually Googled to see just how many gallows and photos I appear in. But I do know that um, in my capacity, my different capacity with different organizations and during my my work over the years, I am usually the one directing the trustees. We've got goals. We have things we're supposed to accomplish during certain events, which is why you see me all over the place um, and with people and also, at almost every event you see me at, I am on a mission of of one thing or another. So that's how that's happened. And I do think um it, it helps that that I have a love of of being with people and being and connecting people. Um it, it's just sort of a natural environment for me to be in. I I can also be very quiet and introspective, but when I'm on, I'm on.
1: how'd you but how'd you get here? For instance. Even as an undergraduate, you had to create a unique major that even in NYU, one of the largest universities in the country, couldn't do alone. It needed to collaborate with the Metropolitan Museum of Art to create a major just for you. So clearly you don't like to fit into boxes. Tell, no. us, tell us how you you moved to where you are today.
0: Well, it's interesting because the, the Metropolitan Museum situation grew out of the fact that I went to the high school of music and art, LaGuardia High School. Um, and it had a, uh, it was a feeder program for the Mets high school internship program. So I applied to be part of a, the internship program. I got in and that started me on my museum career. It was not a plan at first. It was more, I didn't want to just work at a camp for the summer. I really wanted to do something a little bit more exciting. And it was either the Met or the Bronx Zoo And the Met came through first. Who knows what would have happened if it had been the Bronx Zoo, an organization that I still love very much. So when I went to the Met, I was a I remember a teenager. Um, I wa- I I didn't want to leave when the internship was up. So I went to some of my mentors there and I said, "So what do I do? I want to stay in the museum world, but um, I'm not quite sure what to do." And they said, "This is very interesting." And these were days at the Met when things were a little looser. They said, "Every curator needs help. Every curatorial department is working on a major exhibition. Walk up to some of the curators and say." do you need help, I'm available to help and create an internship for yourself. So I think that was my first um, sort of aha moment that if I really wanted to do something, I just needed to ask. So I did go up to the curator of Islamic art at the time and they were putting together a huge exhibition called Renaissance of Islam, Art of the Mamluks and said, do you need help? And they of course said, yes, we desperately need help. Um, and I, that's how I got into my research associate position in the Department of Islamic Art, which is called something different these days, um, and and embarked on my museum career, but it was supposed to be a curatorial track. So that's where the METs, the MET did not want me to do um, a traditional art history course of study because they, I was interested in cross-cultural influences, which at the time was not as common as it is today. And so the, the major that they designed with both the College of Arts and Science at NYU, And Gallatin Division allowed me to study um, medieval and renaissance studies east and west, but it had to be constructed because it didn't really exist. And actually, the reason I got into fundraising, we didn't say this, um, was that because it would probably annoy some people still. um, I was a research associate in the Islamic department. We were doing a major exhibition. The curatorial department, of course, had overspent the exhibition budget. And they came to me and said, we have no money to pay you. And I went, oh hell no, that's not happening. So I went to a couple of the major donors of the exhibition and said, "We're expanding our programming. My roles expanding. We need some additional funds. Could you help?" And they said, "Sure." And I raised three times as much, paid myself, and gave the rest back to the department. And then I went, "I maybe this is something I should explore," you know. So that's how I swerved. And the, and and the Met had already. You know, I had a place at the Institute of Fine Arts. They had invested 10 years, you know, as far as they were concerned, I was going to go on to get my master's and PhD. So when I turned around and went, nope, I think I'm going to go do this. It was a, it was a, I didn't realize it at the time because I was younger, quite an earthquake. Like you just did not say no to the Metropolitan Museum after they had spent that much time um, investing in you. And then I ended up being pushed by the funders all the time. And I ended up running the Whitney's membership program when I was 26, which to me, Looking back was not that I mean, I would not have hired you at 26 to run a multi-million dollar membership program, but the, but the director and the funders believed that I could do it. So,
1: so first lesson, if you see what you want, ask for it, let me uh, go to our current life. Um, mm-hmm. we have a number of financial advisors, registered advisors, collectors and donors, some major ones who listen to this podcast and one of your areas of expertise for your not-for-profit clients is development, which is a nice elevated term for how to get people to donate or donate more. So let me ask you two basic questions. First, why do people donate? And second, you've said that the younger generation has different motivations for donating than their parents. What are the differences?
0: People donate for a number of different reasons, but ultimately, and I tell this all the time to people, I've told this to many different advisors and, um, and, and people who work in other industries, they're donating because they're connecting with an organization's mission and values. So if you as an organization or an advisor are not able to communicate why it sincerely should be important and, and connect with that donor, then you're missing the opportunity. Now. Older donors have different reasons. They tend, to, they tend to be involved with five to seven different organizations, sometimes at arm's length, sometimes they're very involved in one or two. Younger donors really want to be involved in a more proactive way. not a word I like, but, but it is they want, they want to experience the organization. They want to feel like they're making some sort of a contribution other than monetarily, but they certainly give monetarily. So it's about connecting to them. They 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 don't like long meetings. They they want to sit there and have a, a real um, exchange about the organization's mission and what's going on. They want to be in programmatic councils where they can help um, contribute and shape and and be part of the organization. So I'd say it's a more active donor, but uh, donor profile. But they but ultimately, people give to people, and people give to organizations and people and their missions that that connect with their values. Does that answer the question?
1: Sure. So what advice would you give to individuals who want to become better donors aside from write bigger checks?
0: I think if you are thinking of getting involved with an organization and you have a philanthropic philosophy, right, the best thing that you can do is do some research, um, talk to people who are already involved in the organization. Everybody loves to help. So if you say to somebody who serves on a board or who's very involved in an organization that you're interested in, I kind of want to just get your advice about something. People are always willing to give advice. They're flattered. They are engaged. Um, then you can find out a little bit more about the culture of the organization and about what they really are or aren't doing. So you should be, a, you should be an educated, more active um, donor as, as you go into something
1: let's turn it around. You, you advise top endowments and foundations about their business strategies. What's a typical assignment like, and what's some of the stranger requests you've ever gotten? No need to identify the clients of course, but just right. Typically.
0: Well, um, there was one organization I was working with, um, really a great mission. Um, and, and and they came to me and they said, "We really want to buy this property." And we were, we were doing a sort of assessment of their strategic planning process and, and figuring out how to go into another strategic planning process with them. And um, this sort of property situation came out of left field. And I asked the kind of the basic questions which they thought they had the answers to. And then we sort of uh, I, brought, I pulled in some other people from the bank. We had a real estate team to sort of do some due diligence on it. And it turns out that the organization had already been gifted that property like 20 years before. Um, but somehow the paper trail and the institutional memory got lost. So then it was a matter of um, making sure that they had the title to the property and also um, explaining to the board why they didn't need to buy something that they already owned, which may seem like a simple situation, but was fraught with all kinds of emotional issues.
1: And I take it this was not, a small piece of property is just probably no. a, mater- a material piece of property.
0: It was. It so was. So they
1: misplaced a multi-million-dollar piece of property.
0: They misplaced the paperwork around a multi-million-dollar property, and it and it had to do with somebody who had been um, very involved with the organization for many many years, and then had passed away. So it was a it was a complex situation, but all turned out well in the end.
1: Okay. Um, one of the topics that businesses and finance is dealing with daily today is diversity, equity, and inclusion, but not for profits. And I I know you have an expertise in museums and historical, particularly museums and those that deal with history Mm -hmm. have really sort of complex diversity, equity, inclusion issues because their entire collections were built without considering it. So can you go into... What happens there? A bit It's a best practice guidelines.
0: Yes, when I um, when I come in on the diversity, equity, and inclusion issue, I'm usually working with boards of trustees, right, who want to expand and and also staffing, right, leader leadership in the organizations. Um, so that's slightly different than the than the sort of material object, diver- you know, ec- diversity, equity, and inclusion. There is a lot of positive work that's being done. Um, for instance, the Smithsonian is going to give back the Benin bronzes. We think um that's a major step in the right direction um, but that's a different set of questions so so if you are if you are what i usually do with boards i sit there and i say first of all let's go through what people think diversity equity and inclusion means and if you ask the board of trustees or a leadership team in an organization a museum or or any other organization what that kind of question you'll get 15 different answers so what i first try to do is is educate the, the people I'm working with, on what diversity means. It doesn't just mean ethnic diversity. It means diversity of thought and background. It also means um, diversity of age and generation. So it's a it's a number of factors. And then you have to sort of figure out, once you bring on some, some new board members or new leadership team who are in that diversity, equity, and inclusion category, are you really empowering them or are you just having them sit there in the room so you can say you did it? You have to integrate them into the way the organization works and let them have some power and say in how things are, are done. I've seen boards with all good intentions bring on some younger cohorts and more diverse cohorts. And then I'm, I am the one that has to tell the existing board, you need to give these people some, some power and some committee committee assignments. And they're not just there to sit in the room. So it's a, it's a, it's a process, but it's all going in the right direction, I think.
1: In addition to consulting on governance and DEI, um, and development, you also are very knowledgeable about the art market. Um, uh, so what advice can you give people who either collect art or want to start to collect art, not so much, which artists would you recommend, but what's the process people should undertake? to not be, you know, that person that every dealer in town knows is easy work.
0: It's a very interesting question. Again, um, I would again say it comes, and I'm going to go back to this. It comes from the heart. You should always collect what you care about, what moves you, what, what sparks some interest in you, but, but you should also, again, comes to education, um, go to art fairs, talk to the gallery owners, talk to the artists, you know, see, again, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know enough about this. And then that, that makes you a better consumer, so to speak. And you are not um, walking into a situation unarmed, so to so to speak.
1: But how should people think about art? I'll give you about price in art. I'll give you an example. Um I recently was intrigued by a female painter from Ethiopia who's just had, um, uh, a simultaneous showing at galleries in, in Manhattan and in Rhinebeck, New York, and she's becoming increasingly well-known. And when I first heard about her, which was only a year ago, her larger paintings went from five to $8,000. And so I was going to go to the gallery and look at it. And because this gallery had quote, discovered her, um, end quote. And is a well-known gallery, they were pricing her paintings and her other paintings had jumped up to 30 to $40,000 each. So granted the intrinsic value of art doesn't exist. It's what people will pay for it. But how should, how should someone think about things when, um, you feel like you're being almost not manipulated by the gallery, but when the price of something is partially dependent on what in finance you would call strong hands holding right. on to, um, a security in art. You'd say, well, it's being supported by XYZ dealer. Right.
0: Um, it's sort of like time, it's timing issues, certainly. Right. I mean, um, years ago, my brother and my uncle took a key pairing subway going off the, uh, off the wall of the subway station in uh, at Astor place, uh, rolled it up and, and left it for a while and, and forgot about it. And then later on came upon it and went, oh, wait a minute, and by then Keith Haring's prices had shot up and the subway drawings were really popular. But at the time they took it because they liked it, right? And so I, I do think that you can't control what happens when an artist catches on or is represented by a gallery that does a really good job of marketing and pushing that artist and, and developing that artist's career. And you can't predict where the art market is gonna go or not go. So again, it goes back to, if you like it, buy it.
1: So speaking about what some people might say is hype and pushing, um, the hot topic in the art world right now, are NFTs or non-fungible tokens. And to date, NFTs have been in the headlines for the sale of digital representation of artworks, like those of the Bordy Yacht Club or Beeple, um, and one of our previous guests, Matt Hogan, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Bitwise, says that's a total misunderstanding of what it, NFTs will be. Um, he thinks there are better use cases for it. But right now, people, I think, have been surprised that buyers would pay seven figures for a piece of code that evidences ownership of artworks that exist digitally.
0: So I, mm-hmm. I think it's
1: fair to say that whenever the ultimate utility of NFT technology the prices have been controversial. What yes. What's your opinion about NFTs for collectible art?
0: I do have a love hate relationship with the whole NFT concept. Um, I I find it I find it interesting. And I, and I'll quote my seventeen year old nephew. He goes, "You guys know it's just code, right? Um, it's it's just code." And he so I I tried to explain sort of the the vagaries of the art market to him, but he wasn't getting it because he's of that generation that's digital, totally digital, right? Um, in terms of utility, I think what's interesting, and this is starting to happen, um, museums are starting to work with companies that are reproducing specific works in their collections and using them as revenue generators. That's, that's an interesting development. I don't know how far that's going to go, but so far, major museums like the Hermitage and the Uffizi um, are doing things like that. The I don't other think anyone is
1: buying the Hermitage NFTs right now.
0: No, you know well. No, not in the midst Hermes. of the I, Russia yes. Ukraine war. I but. think I think there's been a, a a stop on that for now. But certainly the Uffizi has has done some uh, interesting things with NFTs, and they are potentially revenue generators for institutions. But then the, then the other use of them is um, to provide artists with continuing royalties. Right. So so that's a that's to me a really um, positive thing for artists because if an artist's work sells in in a, in a contemporary in a regular form if it goes on the secondary market they don't get a thing they don't get a thing once they make that first sale and they split whatever it is with the gallery so this to me is a is a way of 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 giving artists a bit more of an equal play in the in the market but i don't know it's it's hard to predict where it's going to go and it's hard to predict other utility for them the music industry is is becoming very interested in them and we'll see what happens. But I am, like everyone else, keeping a close eye on it. And I think it's also interesting that at first, financial institutions and auction houses said, oh, we're not going to go near it. And now, of course, everybody's jumped on the bandwagon since last March. I think it was last March when it sort of all blew up.
1: And it's sort of like investment banks and broker dealers say they're not going to deal with crypto and now everyone jumps on the bandwagon. So.
0: And then the, exactly same thing.
1: We'll see where it all goes eventually. So what's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about at the moment?
0: I'm really excited, and this is because also a couple of clients are involved in things like this, about the intersection between science and art. So the tech, not the, the technology developments that allow archaeologists to map sites without having to dig everything up, to map sites from afar, um, programs that that bring in science and art, concepts and show how everything's connected. I've got a couple of museum clients who are doing that and other alternative space clients who are working on things like that. So I think the, the use of technology and the service of art and cultural heritage preservation, um, really gets me excited.
1: Let's, let's end with a couple of quick questions. Um, you have a number of cats and you tend to give them interesting names. what are your cats names, and why?
0: Um, early on, I decided my cat should have noble names. Um, when I had an interest in Alexander the Great and Macedonia, I named uh, a cat Darius after Alexander's father. Um, then when I was on my Egyptian kick, I named uh, another cat Nefertiti um, and another cat Thesis and um, another cat Milo, who everybody thought was just you know a, a cute name, but really he was named after a, a, a senator in Rome who was the first non um he was sort of a street thug and became a senator and i thought it fit the cat's personality so that's how milo got to be milo
1: how do you relax
0: ironically um hanging out with friends as you know but um, going to a lot of museum shows movies i love um music so I, I guess i relax by taking in the arts without having to be um on duty so
1: what music do you listen to when you're relaxing
0: well, that's, that's, I, I don't always have control of the music because as you know, my husband's an audiophile. So we have a, a vast collection of albums, LPs, and music. But I do like classical music. I like jazz. I like opera, um, as another friend of ours does. And, um, and I, like, uh, I like Arabic music. I like, you know, I like staying a lot. So I, I have kind of eclectic taste. It sort of goes along with my cross-cultural theme. What are you reading? I am reading right now, Thieves of Baghdad, um, which is um, Matthew Bogdanus' saga of how he and his team helped um, retrieve the treasures that were stolen or destroyed from the Iraqi museum. Um, He's he's still the assistant DA in New York and he's a fascinating character. The other thing I do is um, I am a serial mystery reader. So I have, a really a love of of books by Donna Leon which is set in murder mysteries set in Venice but it's also about the culture in Venice as a character in the book and then also um Andrea Camilleri who wrote the Commissario Montalbano series which is about um murder mysteries in Sicily and again Sicily is a big part of the of the books series
1: you're half sicilian right
0: i am and the other half is Neapolitan, an interesting combination, I'm told.
1: Okay. So, if you could be on vacation right now, where would you be?
0: Florence or Sicily, actually, or Rome. So, clearly Italy.
1: And what would make you determine between Florence, Sicily, or Rome?
0: I promised our Florentine friends that the first time I stepped back in Italy, it would be Florence first. Okay. And you know they'll find out if I don't do that.
1: I thought those were the Sicilians who will find out.
0: Yes, well, them too, but the Florentines definitely are are equally as uh equally as offended.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, last question. If you could magically whisper into everyone in America's ear, what would you tell them?
0: I would say, in all of the swerves I've made in my career, which was definitely not planned, um, stay curious, right? Stay uh, conti- be a continuous learner. And, and because you never know, you never know where that conversation is going to lead you. You never know what opportunity is going to pop up. Um, Taking as much as you can be strategic about it. I like to think of myself as a pragmatic optimist. And I think that's um, one of the best ways to look at the world.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to outside in with our special guest, Daniela Motto Milligan. As you've heard, Danny is very knowledgeable about a host of cultural activities and has converted that into uh, being one of the leading consultants to not-for-profits in the country. Her business acumen and her artistic acumen are an interesting combination. And I hope that came through today. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, or we'd love it if you'd leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.